0: You. If you're visiting today, my name is Ben. It's good to have you. It is a hot day. Reminds me of when I lived in Tennessee. And when we lived in Tennessee, I remember going to a restaurant for breakfast once. He says, Dad, why are they serving eggs with Brian's? What are Brian's? I asked him. He said, No, Ben, those are brains. Down here in Tennessee, we have cow brains that we scramble and eat with our eggs. How many of you guys this morning had cow brains with your eggs? Brains and eggs. It's very common. You get it all over the place down in Bolivar, Tennessee where I live. Many of you just made a facial expression at me when I suggested, uh, and and that's what we're having for lunch today, so you'll be able to try it, brains. No, you all did something to some degree that was very similar, it's universal. You made a reaction with your face, and that reaction was related to disgust, <laughs> all right. You might be disgusted at this next quote as well. I'm going to open our sermon here the way most pastors do, by quoting Charles Darwin. Huh? It's going to be good. Listen to this. This is, this is from Darwin, his book called The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. He says, the term disgust in its simplest sense means something offensive to the taste. It is curious how readily this feeling is excited by anything unusual in appearance, odor, or nature of our food. In Tierra del Fuego, a native touched with his finger some cold, preserved meat, which I was eating at our tent, and he plainly showed utter disgust at its softness. Though his hands did not appear dirty, I plainly showed disgust at this savage touching my food, a naked savage, says Darwin." That disgust went both ways. He says, a smear of soup on a man's beard looks disgusting. Though there is, of course, nothing disgusting in the soup itself. I presume that this follows from the strong association in our minds between the sight of food, however circumstanced, and eating it. Disgust is a surprising emotion. Think about this. Little tiny babies don't have it. They'll put dirt in their mouth, they'll put other things in their mouth that don't belong in the mouth. They're just interested. Disgust is learned. Disgust is very helpful. We live in a certain terrain here in the Pacific Northwest. There's a certain disgust that comes to us in terms of eating wild berries in the woods. This is helpful for our survival, okay? but sometimes our disgust prevents us from eating nutritious things that could be good for us terrains which we live in are very different and the foods available are different so each society develops different sort of systems of what's good and bad disgusting tasty etc it's universal which i've already mentioned everybody makes the same exact reaction it's simple too. Your eyes squint. You think of it. Think about something disgusting to eat. Your nose scrunches up. Your eyes kind of tighten. Your face is trying to block it from coming in. And and this has been documented all around the world. We all react the same way. So we all share it. And here's the two major things that we do with disgust. It's it's always this. We create a boundary, and we expel. Disgust is a boundary psychology and an expulsion psychology. So you're having your scrambled eggs, and you crunch into that chalky, gritty shell. Some of you gagged right now. (laughs) The boundary is no eggshells in my scrambled eggs. Then when it happens, what does my body want to do? get rid of it, you know. You want to expel it from your being. This is common. We need to get the impurity out in order to return to a state that's less degraded. When it's in, it's degrading us. So, those are two major moves, and we're just talking about eating food right now, but I think you can see where we might be going. When you start to think about disgust as it relates to human beings, then it expands in a different way. Now imagine the way that the ancient Israelites dealt with the disgust of having sin within their community. Every year was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. There would be a scapegoat, a real goat, And metaphorically speaking, they would heap the sins of the community onto the scapegoat and do what with the goat? Expel it. Get it out of the community. This is our way of purging the sin from within and sending it out. That's a way to be purified or cleansed. Now, when you get to the time we're in today in our story, in the time of Jesus, you have a group of people called Pharisees. And they have become very noteworthy for the purity within their community. And they exercise this disgust mechanism in terms of people. There are boundaries that you must cross or stay out of to be within us. And if you violate them, we expel, we get rid of. So they were known for being a very pure community. Now we have to think about this. Do we want a pure community here at Central Bible Church? Is the church supposed to be a community of holy and sanctified people? Yeah, it is. But what we think about today when we're going to read the story of Peter and Cornelius is what do we mean when we start to talk about purity and holiness? The Pharisees meant we keep the dirty people out. Jesus does not seem to share in that method. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees are seeing their group as the holiest, most righteous of all. They achieve this by expelling the the tax collectors and the sinners, the dirty people from among them. And, And they're used to this. They're not just malicious weirdos who are you know, bent on power. Their mom and dad taught them to do this. Grandma and grandpa taught them to do this. They had a whole litany of Bible verses that supported their behavior. They're not just out there wheeling and dealing weird stuff, they're actually following under deep conviction of what they had been handed. They're obeying the tradition. But it's not what Jesus is about. He completely rejects their methods. He calls them a brood of vipers. He's saying that when you live like that, you become a bringer of death and chaos, a viper. That's not what holiness is for Jesus. The key for holiness is showing mercy. Mercy is his rule. Jesus refuses to sacrifice the certain people, so that the holy community can happen. You see? It's a total switch in thinking. How do we have a pure community? Draw a line, this is how you get in, and if you are bad, we boot you. Jesus rises above that, breaks the wall down, he transcends the wall, and then includes the unincludable, those who previously had no right to be there. That is how he saves us. That is how he brings us into his relationship, and in that, he heals us. So this is all the background, if you will, for the story we're going to read. I want to read through Acts chapter 10 with you. We'll paraphrase some of it as we go because it's a pretty long passage, but it's one unified story. Some of you are familiar with it, some aren't, but I want to walk through it because it's a cool story, and I think it teaches us something crucial for today. Acts 10, verse one is where we'll start. Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A cohort, stop for a second. In in the army, the Roman army, you've got a legion, uh, which is 6,000 people. Uh, You've got cohorts within the legion, There are 10 cohorts, so there's about 600 within a cohort. And then you have centuries within the cohort, and the centurion runs that. So these guys are respectable. They're the backbone of the army, uh, and, and they're leading a relatively small group in the large cohort, okay? He, therefore, is showing us, Luke, that Cornelius is courageous, And he's loyal. There's no way you're a centurion if you don't have those two characteristics. So he's a courageous and very dedicated, committed, loyal servant. 10, 2, verse 2. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was all his household. He did many acts of charity or love for the people, and he prayed to God regularly. So he's courageous. He's loyal. He's devoted. And not just devoted to whatever... He's devoted to the Jewish way of life. He's worshiping the one true God. Remember, this is Cornelius. He's Roman. He's not a Jewish guy. But he sees something in the worship of Yahweh that he is drawn to, and he participates in it. And it changes the way that he treats others. He shows love, charity toward them. He helps, and he's known for it. I think that Luke is showing us uh, a person in Cornelius he's showing us a person that is a a perfect example of of being in an acceptable state to repent, if you will. Cornelius does not seem to be like a power mongering self seeker he seems to be seeking God and and loving others. It's the notion of If you're seeking him, you will find him. Cornelius, I think, for Luke, is a picture, a concrete picture of exactly how true that is. Cornelius is presented right in these first verses as truly seeking after God. And so, God is going to meet him. Verse 3, about three o'clock in the afternoon would be the time that a Jew would be praying faithfully. About three o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and he said to him, Cornelius, staring at him and becoming greatly afraid, Cornelius replied, what is it, sir, Lord, what is it? It's a term of respect he uses there. And the angel said to him, your prayers and your acts of charity have gone up as a memorial before God Now. Send men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon, who was called Peter. This man is staying as a guest with a man named Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoken to him departed, Cornelius called two of his personal servants and a devout soldier from among those who served him. And when he had explained everything to them, he sent them down to Joppa. There's a really important piece here in Luke's writing that is easy to miss, and I want you to see it. Cornelius is clearly not Jewish, okay? He's a centurion, he's Roman. So the idea is that he's very clearly an outsider, but Luke is presenting him to us like a Jewish person. Here he's saying, I think, anyone can seek Jesus with a humble heart, regardless of the culture that they're born into. I think that's the point that he's trying to make. Look it, he's praying at three o'clock like a Jewish person. Look he's devout and worshiping God. Look he's doing almsgiving, one of the key tenets of being a Jewish person. But he didn't come, Luke is trying to say, this isn't just your genetic linkage to Abraham. All people can live in a way that's devoted to God. Now here's why I think it's important, I'd ask you, can God save anyone? I think we say, yes, he can. He's powerful enough to save any human being. That should bring us great comfort. Sometimes I think we stop there, though, as though the Bible just wants us to be excited about that very simple fact. God can save everyone, okay? Yippee, that's awesome. But I think the sentence goes on. When we say that God can save anyone, I don't think it's a statement about God being so accommodating that he can extend to everybody, if that makes sense. It's not a statement about how accommodating God is as much as it is a statement about what all people can do. Whatever ethnic or religious, geographic, socioeconomic background Any human being can repent and turn to God. I think that's the point. I'm not saying the other point is not there as well. God's power and his salvation can reach all. But there's something that Luke is showing us here in the way that a non-Jew is turning to God. Cornelius is presented to us as a man who's seeking God. So Luke is telling us a story about how God finds him. Remember, Jesus promises If you seek me, you'll find me. That will happen. Now, when you encounter Jesus for real, you accept his welcoming forgiveness and love, he establishes you on his team, and it's a team that's on mission. So what happens to Cornelius? He's seeking God. God speaks to him in a very profound angelic vision, and he says, okay, and then he says, now, here's what I want you to do. You're on my team. Go down to Joppa. All right? So the story continues. Verse 9. At about noon the next day, while they, Cornelius and his crew, were on their way approaching the city, meanwhile, Peter goes up onto the roof to pray. (laughs) He became hungry, which is often what happens when we're praying. He became hungry, and he wanted to eat. But while they were preparing the meal, a trance came over him. Uh, This language is the language of he was it's like out of body experience it's literally he was beside his self or out of self so it's a weird moment he has this trance verse 11 here's what he saw he saw heaven opened and an object something like a large sheet descending being let down to the earth by its four corners and in it were all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and wild birds. And a voice said to him, Stand up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter said, (laughs) Peter said, No way. Certainly not, Lord, for I have never eaten anything defiled and impure. And the voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not consider impure. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back up into heaven. Okay? If you're a Jewish person like Peter, you have been raised, knowing Leviticus 11, and you know that there are a whole host of animals and kinds of food in this world that you are forbidden to eat. Reptiles are one of them, okay? Uh, they, we, we, they're just, it's a huge list. Read, read Leviticus 11. You go through them. Bugs, reptiles, all that stuff, pigs, everything. You can't eat it. Not only that, but you can't eat good food that has been touched by defiled food. So they're all in the sheet together. So even if there's a cow in there, which is worth eating, it's been touched by the rattlesnake, you're not going to eat it. So what God is saying to Peter is, Peter, I want you to violate one of the deepest things that you hold to be true about loving me. And Peter just says what we would all say. Sorry, God, you made a mistake. No, not doing it. Peter's a stubborn fellow, isn't he? Notice, this wasn't, uh, it's not in his vision that the sheet came down to earth and went back up and down and up three times like they were playing a game of parachute with a bunch of stuffed animals. There was the whole entire scene that happened three times. Peter, kill and eat. No way. Peter, stand up, kill and eat. No, I'm not. Peter likes to deny God in threes, doesn't he? Three times in a row, every time. He just keeps going. Why is he so strongly opposed to God? Why is he so crazy adamant? This is a really strong adversative. He is not in any kind of way interested in doing this. It's so interesting what's going on here. Because God is certainly talking about the change to being able to eat any kind of food. But it's bigger. You know it's bigger than that already, don't you? Okay. If you get really honest, I think we we can... know that in our world we see certain kinds of people as either clean or unclean. God is trying to raise that to to Peter's mind. I'm going to have you stop looking at human beings as though they're unclean. If you do, if they disgust you, and disgust is all about drawing a boundary and expelling That's going to be really, really cumbersome when we try to show hospitality in a Christ-like way. We won't be very welcoming and we won't be very loving to those who disgust us because we're just instinctively going to gag them out, keep them away. It's easy to miss the intensity of Peter's disgust here, but it's as intense as it can be This is a major moment for him. And Luke preemptively shoots down all the yeah but arguments. You know the yeah but argument? It's just like God says, hey Ben, I love all the people in this world that I made. And I want you to love them too. And I say, yeah, that's great. But there's this one person or group of people that I just can't, you know. There's just at least one holdout, really, really gross kind of I think when he emphasizes the Genesis language of all of the creatures in the earth, he's saying all, all people. Not all people except for this one particular kind of person. Something insane is happening inside Peter right now. God has just told him to utterly reject the teaching of his parents. Peter's mom and dad taught him how to show faith in God, and part of that teaching was to obey Leviticus 11. Grandma, grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa, all his aunts and uncles, everybody in his community, do not do this. And God is saying, It's time to change, Peter. You're going to now change with me. Stop calling these foods unclean. God is saying, Peter, that was then, and there were reasons for that then. But, Peter, this is now, and I'm asking you to change. And the major difference between then and now is Jesus. Jesus has become the final atonement for sins, which means those food prohibitions are now immediately over. Atonement can get to be kind of a Christian easy word that we don't sometimes know what it means. Just think of it as at one you're at one with God or atoned at one moment, Peter might say but God that is how I am at one with you by not eating shrimp I don't do it that's how I honor you and God God hears him I think he respects Peter Peter says another way I honor you is by not associating with Gentiles I don't eat reptiles and I don't hang with Gentiles That's how I honor you. And God is saying now that Jesus changes how we are at one with him. We no longer send out the scapegoat on the day of atonement. We don't need to kick out sinful people to have a holy community. Holiness is about a contrite heart, humility, mercy, grace, and consistently showing forgiveness Jesus then is the rule. Whereas Peter before met God and honored God and loved God by following the food law, God is now directing him away from the food law into the life of Jesus and saying be with this man because he is the Messiah who came to save you and he has paid the final price for atonement. There's no longer a need to do those sacrifices. God is giving Peter a great freedom here. Notice. At first glance, Peter's like, you've got to be kidding me. But God is setting him free. God is not saying, hey, Peter, now you need to start eating BLTs right now. Eat them. Eat it. You know, He's not doing that. He's just saying, you're welcome to if you'd like. You need to stop calling them unclean. And you really need to stop thinking that people who eat BLTs are unclean. That's the real key how do you view others who do things very differently than you? All right, verse 17. Now, while Peter was puzzling over this vision, he's very confused, the men sent by Cornelius had learned where Simon's house was and they approached the gate. Now the story continues here. I'll fast forward. We're told once again that Cornelius is upright, he's righteous, he's well regarded by the whole Jewish community, and he's come to hear a message from Peter, okay? So God told Cornelius, I want you to go down and meet with this Jewish guy, he's got something to say to you. Verse 22, God told me to come to your place. He said, you've got something to say to me. Peter's really scrambling now, you know, imagine him in the moment, he's like, oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Come on in, let me get you some water. Verse 23, so Peter invited them in and he showed hospitality to them as guests. On the next day he got up and he sent out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day he entered Caesarea. That's a good 30 mile walk, so it's an overnight trip. Now Cornelius was waiting anxiously for them and called together his relatives and his close friends. So when Peter came in, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up. You see the scene. Cornelius is waiting, sends his guys out. They say, Peter, roll up here. Peter rolls up there, and the moment Cornelius sees Peter, he's falling prostrate. He's on the ground. He says, my goodness, you're here. Now Peter helped him up, verse 26. Stand up. I too am a mere mortal. Hey, stand up. I'm with you, man. I'm not better than you. Verse 27, Peter continued talking with him as he went in, and he found many people gathered together. And he said to them, you know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Yet God has shown me that I should call no person, no person defiled or ritually unclean. Wow. That is such a groundbreaking shift for Peter's thinking and way of life. Probably a better word here than unlawful would be taboo or highly, highly frowned upon. We don't actually have any law that fully prohibits a Jew from engaging with a Gentile. What there are, though, if you're going to do it, you're going to become unclean which has its whole host of social baggage related to it. So you can associate with the Gentile, but it's gonna cost you big time, okay? So it's a big deal that he would do this. That's why Cornelius, Cornelius knows that. That's why he's down on the ground. That whole society, that whole culture, had told Cornelius, you are dirty. You are lower than guys like Peter. So you should fall down to the ground. He's better than you. And Peter, the spokesman of God, comes in and says, no, stand up, be with me. Stand up, my friend, I am like you. And God just blew up my entire world. It took him three attempts, (laughs) but he finally got through to me. I'm like Peter sometimes, I think. And he told me that I should consider no person defiled or unclean because of what Jesus had done. Verse 29, therefore, Peter says, When you sent for me, I came without any objection. Now, can I ask why you sent for me? (laughs) Cornelius answers. we, We go through a couple of verses here, and essentially he's saying, God says that you have something to say to me, so I'm here to listen. So are all these other folks. And now Peter gives a speech in verse 34. He says, I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people or partiality. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcomed before him. That's that same idea. Whatever nation you're in, you can still respond to God. And God responds to you. I want you to be careful here. This is, this, we can get a really mistaken interpretation of this passage. You could take this to mean that God has no partiality related to religious preferences or behaviors or anything that you do at all. That's not it. That's expanding far beyond what the verse is saying. This is not an early voice for the idea that all religions are essentially the same and get you to God. Peter is saying that God's partiality toward people has nothing to do with geographic or ethnic or forensic realities. Americans are not better than Iranians. God's favor is not on our nation more than another. He doesn't show partiality on the basis of geography. Black people are not more desirable to God than white people, and vice versa, or any other color or ethnicity or genetic makeup and forensic realities, what you wear, what you eat, where you live, how you decorate. God does not favor people who eat a ribeye steak over people who eat duck's feet, or cow brains, for goodness sake. He loves Tennesseans just as much as Oregonians, even at the breakfast table. He's not a God who thinks homeowners are better than people who don't have houses. He doesn't judge us on those external, forensic, geographic, all that kind of stuff. But he's not totally impartial about all things, okay? So we want to we let those, the verse speak for what it's saying, and he's really speaking about food laws here that expand into how you view people. Okay. What God seems to really be caring about is how you respond to him and how you respond to fellow human beings that's a place where he gets partial. Verse 35, in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is acceptable is welcome before him. It raises the question, doesn't it? Well, what is acceptable? That's another wonderful place where we can start inserting all of our favorite, well, this is what it means to be acceptable and so forth. I don't want to insert our version of acceptability into the passage. I want to take it in its context. Cornelius has been presented to us as somebody who's acceptable or not. Acceptable to God, very much so. The angel said so. Why is he acceptable to God? It's not because he's following Jewish law so well. It seems to be that he is following some of the Jewish law, but he's doing it because he has got an open heart toward God. He's turned his face to God and to others. Cornelius then sits in a wonderful state of repentance. He's not self-seeking. He's acceptable to God because he's seeking God and the well-being of fellow man. The notion of if you are seeking him, you will find him. The seeking heart is humble, contrite, and open to God's direction. I think that is the acceptable heart. That's what we see in Cornelius. So Peter continues. Peter, as he continues here, sounds a lot like the angels in the opening scene where the, uh, uh, in Luke 2, Christmas story. The angels come in, and they start addressing a bunch of unclean shepherds. And if you remember, they said two things. This is for all the people in the entire world. This good news is for all the people and peace on earth is given to those on whom God's favor rests." Cornelius then becomes a picture of a man on whom God's favor rests. And it's because Cornelius is presented as a man who is repentant and humble and seeking God. Ben Witherington writes this, our story is about to indicate dramatically that Cornelius is one of those upon whom that favor in the form of the Spirit rests. A piece of evidence even the most reluctant Jewish Christians cannot oppose. They have to acknowledge it. All right, I'm gonna paraphrase the whole rest of our passage because it's hot and we don't wanna be here forever. We'll move through the rest of the chapter. I'll go verse by verse and just kind of paraphrase how I see the gist of it. Verse 36, he's saying, you know the good news that came from God. Namely that Jesus is the true ruler over all the world. This is Peter giving a short sermon, if you will. You know what went down with Jesus and his disciples over in Judea? Breaking the power of evil all over the place. He went through his... He he used his words and his deeds to shut down evil everywhere he went. So he starts in verse 38 talking about Jesus' miraculous healings. He's definitely anointed by the true spirit of God. You guys know this in in verses uh, 39 to 41. With our own eyes, he says, we're eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus did. We even ate with him and drank with him after he resurrected. So he's basically just retelling the gospel story to this group of Cornelius' friends. Verse 42, before he left, Jesus told us to preach to the people and to warn them that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. I think that's key. Jesus is the judge, which means I don't have to be. That's nice. And then the last one, verse 43. All of the prophets were ultimately talking about him and what he would do. And the main idea is that if you choose to seek him, to believe in him, he will be the person who gives you life. He'll do this by forgiving you for everything. He forgives us, which means he breaks down the power of evil and death. And here's the concluding thoughts. Jesus is the judge, not me. Jesus gives life, and this happens through forgiveness. And forgiveness comes to people like Peter, and forgiveness comes to people like Cornelius. Both of them. Even though they're so radically different in how they live. Very different geography, very different ethnicity, extremely different forensic realities, clothing, decor, food, rituals, culture. They both, however, have a contrite heart, humble, seeking God. This question is hard to ask you, because I have to ask it to me. How is your heart today? How is your heart? How are you responding to God as he calls you into his love each day? How are you relating to fellow human beings? How are you thinking of them? How are you engaging with them? What are you living for? What are you seeking? What is it that you really, really, really want to know or be able to do. Who are you wanting to stay away from because you think of them as unclean, disgusting, dangerous to your own personal holiness? I think if we as a community really embrace what God is saying to us in Acts chapter 10, we will learn to repent from some of the ways that we think about and treat one another especially those who are currently outside of the community. I think this story is huge for us. Call nobody defiled or unclean. I think we've been doing this here for a long time. We're trying to take down that idea of a boundary set you have to cross to belong and instead say, we're all pursuing Jesus. We're taking down boundaries one brick at a time. I think if we take Acts 10 seriously, We will stop thinking that purity in our community has to do with what people eat or drink or wear or what nation or ethnic background they come from. I think that all ends. And I think the way that Jesus accomplishes his purity is by meeting those who seek him. He promises that he will. You ever feel like you're lost? Or like Jesus is distant? Seek him. Read carefully. Seek counsel from other Christians. If we're seeking Jesus, we're moving into holiness, and he's going to meet us there. And he doesn't have partiality or preference for anybody. That should encourage us. Cleanliness, that's the last thing I'll say. Cleanliness in the community has to do with the transformation of hearts, not with creating boundaries and expelling With God's Spirit, we rise. As we mentioned last week, we stand up and we transcend these kinds of things to begin creating relationships and including. Rather than creating boundaries and excluding, we create relationships and start including. And it is the powerful weapon against evil in our world, in our church. It's the way of grace. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would create clean hearts in us. Make us into a people of mercy. Shape us into a community of grace here in Portland today. And have mercy on us, Lord, for we are sinful Forgive us as we forgive and love our neighbors in this world, this beautiful world that you made, this world that you are making new. Thank you for including us on the project. We love you and we trust you. We trust you, amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.